disclaimer this episode is probably some of the darkest material you'll have you'll ever hear on the internet this is not for children and soft-hearted people please turn off this episode if you are one of those please use headphones if you are around someone who's a child or faint-hearted so what do you know about joseph stalin probably not much if you have heard that name for the first time or if you found this episode by searching for that name you might have heard about stalin's name in the russian revolution and in the second world war in your history classes did you know that stalin killed more people than adolf hitler in fact there are three known people who are more risk who are responsible for more deaths than adolf hitler genghis khan joseph stalin and mao zedong and mao zedong's rule was inspired by joseph stalin so why do most people know a little bit about hitler but almost nothing about joseph stalin in fact joseph stalin was the one who was responsible for downfall of hitler and nazi germany joseph stalin killed his own subjects while hitler killed people outside of germany and started a world war joseph stalin's regime was far far brutal than hitler if you have read george orwell's animal farm stalin is definitely the character called napoleon so i did little bit of digging and let me just say joseph stalin is fascinating character definitely evil not someone you should take an inspiration from but fascinating nonetheless with hitler i think it is important to study why germany a highly educated and highly industrialized nation followed hitler's vision and ideology than studying hitler himself but with stalin it's a lot more fascinating to study than soviet union of course you should study both the dictators and why their subjects followed and obeyed them but of the two stalin is more complex than hitler so let's start with his childhood Stalin was born on 18th December 1878 in a town called Gori in Georgia. His birth name was Yosef Besarionovich Jugashvili. His father Besarionov Jugashvili and his mother Ekaterina Jelatsi were ethnically Georgian. And Yosef was their youngest son and the only one who survived past infancy. Jugashvili the father set up a shop in Gori. It was initially quite successful, employing up to ten people as well as apprentices, and the family initially enjoyed rather high standard of living. However, Jugashvili's drinking and his style of making Georgian shoes rather than European shoes slowly destroyed his business. Frequently drunk, Jugashvili routinely beat his wife and Yosef. This is something common. between hitler and stalin they were frequently beaten severely by their fathers in 1884 jugashvili left the family and moved to tiflis he sent some money to kk the wife as well as offers to reconcile but all efforts to do so failed to support herself and her son ekaterin took on any menial job available mainly housework sewing and laundering ekaterin and stalin left the home by 1883 and began a wandering life in poverty 
moving through nine different rented rooms over the next decade. In 1886, they were able to move into top story of Christopher Sarkviani's house, who was a priest. She lobbied Sarkviani to help enroll Yosef into Gori Church School that year, as well as to teach him Russian. Jugashvili was upset when he learned Ekaterin had enrolled Yosef in school, instead hoping that his son would follow his path and become a cobbler. This led to a major incident in January 1890. At the age of 12, Yosef had been struck by Freton, severely injuring him and probably causing disability in his left arm. Jugashvili returned to Gori and brought his son, brought his son to a Tiflis hospital. And after Yosef healed, he was apprenticed to the Adel Khanav factory. Ekaterin adamantly opposed to that idea and used her connections with the church to bring Yosef back to Gori, where he would continue to con- continue his studies to become a priest. On 13 February 1892, he witnessed public hanging of two criminals and it traumatized him. But that event also planted hatred of Tsarist regime in Yosef. In August 1894, Yosef enrolled in Orthodox Spiritual Seminary in Tiflis. He wrote poetry under pseudonym Soselo, but later on he lost interest in becoming a priest and repeatedly got into trouble. If joined a forbidden book club at the school, he was particularly influenced by Alexander Kazbegi's The Patricide. Yosef adopted the nickname Koba from that book's bandit pro- protagonist. Another influential text was Nikolai Chernyshevsky's 1863 pro-revolutionary novel, What is to be Done. He also read Capital, the 1867 book by German sociological theorist Karl Marx. Stalin devoted himself to the Marx sociopolitical theory, Marxism, which was then on the rise in Georgia, one of the various forms of socialism opposed to the empire's governing Tsarist authorities. At night, he attended secret workers' meetings and was introduced to the Marxist founder of Georgian socialist group, Mesame Dasi. Stalin left seminary in 1899 and never returned. In that same year, he began work as a meteorologist at the Tiflis Observatory. He would work he would organize several worker strikes and attack, attracted the attention of Tsar's secret police, Okrana. They attempted to arrest him in 19 of, 1901, but he escaped and went into hiding. He lived off the donations of friends and sympathizers. While underground, he had to organize the May Day 1901 demonstration. Almost 3,000 marchers clashed with authorities. In November 1901, he was elected to Tiflis Committee of Russian Social Democratic Labour Party, RSDLP. He organized other demonstrations and finally got arrested in April 1902. Held in Batumi prison, he was later exiled to Eastern Siberia for three years in 1903. He arrived in Novaya Uda in November 1903. He made two escape attempts and was successful second attempt and went back to Tiflis in January 1904. While in exile, the RSDLP was split into two, Bolsheviks and Mensheviks. Stalin joined the Bolsheviks because he admired Vladimir Lenin and detested some of the Mensheviks. 
On 22nd January 1905, government troops killed unarmed protesters in St. Petersburg, the capital of Tsarist Russia. The event is called the Bloody Sunday. Soon the whole country erupted in protest. This is the revolution of 1905. Georgia was particularly affected. Amid the violence, Jugashvili formed battle squads. His squads disarmed local police and troops and raided government arsenals. He raised funds to protection rackets on local businesses. In November 1905, Georgian Bolsheviks elected Stalin as delegate to a Bolshevik conference in St. Petersburg. The venue was moved to Tampere, Finland. Here, Stalin met Lenin for the first time. Lenin became Stalin's teacher in Marxism and terror. Lenin saw in Stalin a man who is loyal and hardworking and someone who will not waste time drinking or womanizing, someone who will do any work without complaining. Lenin affectionately called him the Wonderful Georgian. In April 1906, Stalin attended RSDLP 4th Congress in Stockholm. Here the party, led by majority Mensheviks, agreed that it would not raise money using armed robbery. But Lenin and Stalin had other ideas. In July 1906, Stalin married his first wife, Kato, in a church ceremony in Senaki. In March 1907, she bore him a son. His name was Yakov. He attended the 5th RSDLP Congress in London. After returning to Tiflis in 1907, Stalin organized the robbery of a large delivery of money to the Imperial Bank. His gang ambushed the armed convoy in Yerevan Square with gunfire and homemade bombs. Around 40 people were killed, but Stalin and his gang survived. After the heist, Stalin settled in Baku with his wife and son. After the heist, Mensheviks conf- confronted Stalin and expelled him from RSDLP. In November 1907, his first wife died of typhus. This destroyed him. During the burial, Stalin also reportedly threw himself into her grave and had to be dragged out. He famously said, This creature softened my heart of stone. She died and with her died all my warm feelings for humanity. If you want a supervillain origin story or a supervillain quote, there you go. In March 1908, Jugashvili or Stalin was arrested and interned in bail of prison in Baku. There, he led the imprisoned Bolsheviks, organized discussion groups and ordered the killing of suspected informants. He was eventually sentenced to two years of exile in village of Solvichegosk, Volgda province, arriving there in February 1909. In January, he escaped the village and made it to Kotlas, disguised as a woman, and from there to St. Petersburg. In March 1910, he was arrested again and sent back to that location again. There he had affairs with at least two women, his landlady, Maria Kuzokova, later gave birth to his second son, Constantine. In January 1911, Jugashvili was given permission to move to Volgda, where he stayed for two months, having relationship with Elgeya 
Onofriva. He escaped to St. Petersburg, where he was arrested in September 1911 and sentenced to further three-year exile in Volta in January 1912, while Jugashvili was in exile. The first Bolshevik Central Committee was elected at Prague Conference. Shortly after the conference, Lenin and Gregory Zinoviev decided to co-opt Stalin to the committee. Stalin agreed and remained a Central Committee member for the rest of his life. Lenin firmly believed that Stalin, as a Georgian, would help secure support for Bolsheviks from empire's minority ethnicities. In February 1912, Stalin escaped to St. Petersburg, tasked with converting Bolshevik weekly newspaper into daily newspaper called Pravda. The new newspaper was launched in April 1912, although Stalin's road as editor was kept secret. In May 1912, he was arrested again and imprisoned at Shefarli Prison, Sparlehirism Prison, before being arrested to three years in exile in Siberia. In July, he arrived at Siberian village in Narim, where he shared a room with fellow Bolshevik Yakov Swerdlov. After two months, Stalin and Swerdlov escaped back to St. Petersburg. During a brief period back in Tiflis, Stalin and the outfit planned the ambush of a mail coach, during most of which group was apprehended by authorities. Stalin returned to St. Petersburg, where he continued editing and writing articles for the Pravda. After October 1912 Duma elections, Stalin wrote articles suggesting reconciliation of two Marxist factions, Bolsheviks and Mensheviks. Lenin criticized him for this and Stalin backed down. When Menshevik leader Julius Martov first denounced Malinowski as a spy in January 1913, Lenin refused to believe him and stood by Malinowski. Stalin threatened Martov's sister and brother-in-law. Malinowski's efforts helped Okhrana arrest Stalin and other party members. Malinowski had persuaded Stalin to attend a Bolshevik fundraising ball by lending him a suit and silk cravat. Stalin was arrested on Feb February 23, 1913 at the ball. Stalin's article, Marxism and National Question, was first published in March, April and May 1913 issues of the Bolshevik General Journal. Lenin was pleased with it. According to Montfiore, this was Stalin's most famous work. The article was published under the pseudonym K. Stalin, a, a name he had used since 1912. Derived from the Russian word for steel, Stal, this has been translated as man of steel. Stalin may have intended to imitate Lenin's pseudonym. Stalin retained that name for the rest of his life, possibly because it was used in the article that established his reputation amongst the Bolsheviks. In July 1913, Malinowski warned the police chief in Turakhansk about escape plan of Stalin. After Stalin was arrested, he changed his mind agreed, and agreed to Martov's view and strongly suspected Malinowski to be an Okhrana spy as he was the only Bolshevik leader not in foreign or Siberian exile. This was confirmed correct years later. This betrayal destroyed Stalin's trust in his comrades. 
While in exile, Stalin became paranoid and became suspicious of all party members other than Lenin and himself, something that would affect citizens of Soviet Union. The wolves that lived nearby during his exile may have haunted Stalin for the rest of his life. Overall, this experience in, Stavl in Siberia brutalized him to the point of psychopathy. While Stalin was in exile, Russia entered in World War I. In February 1917, Stalin was deemed unfit because of his left arm. In that same month, the February Revolution happened. The Russian Tsar abdicated and Russia became a republic with a provisional government. Stalin reached the capital in March by train. In Lenin's absence, Stalin continued editing Pravda and served as the acting leader of the Bolsheviks, overseeing the party's Sixth Congress, which was held covertly. Lenin began calling for the Bolsheviks to seize power by overthrowing provisional government. Both Stalin and Trotsky endorsed Lenin's plan of action, but it was initially opposed by Kamenev and other party members. Lenin returned to Petrograd and secured a majority in favor of coup at a meeting of the Central Committee on 10th October. On 25th of October, the Bolshevik coup began. This event is now called the October Revolution. Stalin worked behind the scenes before and during the October Revolution and was not publicly visible. Stalin's opponents, including Trotsky, later tried to use this as evidence against him. While the Soviet propaganda showed a grand, violent revolution, reality was underwhelming. They just took over key buildings of the, in the capital. On 26th of October, Lenin became the dictator of the Tsarist regime and formed a new government called Council of People's Commissars for the new state called Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic with the left, revo the left socialist revolutionaries. And this is where Stalin began consolidating even more power. Four most important people in this government were Lenin, Stalin, Trotsky and Sverdlov. Stalin and Trotsky were the only ones who could enter Lenin's office without appointment. Stalin was still not publicly well known as Trotsky, but grew in importance in the Bolsheviks. Stalin with Sverdlov helped the committee in charge drafting a constitution. Lenin formed Cheka Security Service. Cheka went through several name changes like NKVD, KGB and is now known as FSB. This Cheka service started the Red Terror. Both Trotsky and Stalin supported Cheka and Red Terror that it initiated. After Bolsheviks threw the provisional government, Russia descended into civil war. Initially, the Bolsheviks controlled a small but much more industrialized part of Russia, while the counter-revolutionary controlled major but less industrialized parts of Russia. The counter-revolutionary included non-Bolshevik socialists, Tsarists, as well as other countries that wanted to either steal wealth and resources from Russia and or stop the spreading of communism. These country countries were the British Empire, US, France, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Greece, Italy, Romania, Serbia, China, and Japan. The military under Bolsheviks was called the Red Army, and its opposition was called the White Army. I'm not going to cover this civil war in detail, 
but will give you the big picture and Stalin's role in the civil war. Stalin was appointed People's Commissar for Nationalities. He married his secretary, Nadezhda Aliluyeva. Stalin signed a decree of nationality, giving ethnic minorities the right to secession. But this was only done to gain favors and support of ethnic minorities. In March 1918, Lenin's government changed the capital from Petrograd to Moscow, or from St. Petersburg to Moscow. Stalin supported Lenin's decision to get out of World War I, no matter what. Lenin convinced other Bolsheviks of the same, and the new Soviet Russia signed a peace treaty with Central Powers of World War I, called the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. Because of this treaty, Ukraine, Belarus, Poland, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania became independent. Russia had just lost 34% of its population and more than half of its industrial land. Ukraine, Belarus, Poland, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. These are the countries. In 1918, the country was facing a famine and Lenin blamed this on Kulaks, a wealthier class of peasants. In May 1918, Lenin issued an order to confiscate grains from Kulaks and began decolacization. But soon the production failed and Lenin decided to pause decolacization, allowing peasants to engage in capitalism only temporarily. And what a surprise, food production increased. This should have been the warning sign of things to come. And if Lenin and Bolsheviks continued in the path of Marxist-Leninism, but this was ignored. The Socialist Revolutionary Party member, Fanny Kaplan, on August 30, 1918, attempted assassination of Vladimir Lenin. Lenin was seriously wounded. During the civil war, Stalin was sent to Tsaritsyn to secure food supply. There, Stalin befriended Kilmant Voroshilov and Semyon Budyonny, one of his biggest military and political support bases in his life. Stalin proved himself by showing decisiveness, determination, and responsibility, but also disregarded orders, preferring to do things his own way. In November 1919, the Bolsheviks and Red Army won the civil war, but Russia was dragged into another war the next year, this time with Poland. Poland took Kiev 7th of May and on 26th, Stalin was sent to Ukraine. The Red Army took back Kiev on 10th of June and sent Polish military back into Poland. The Bolsheviks decided to enter Poland. Lenin believed the Polish workers would rise against the Polish government. But Stalin thought by doing that, doing an offensive war would stir feelings of nationalism in Poles and they would side with the government. Stalin was proven right and this changed the course of Soviet Union. Years later, Stalin was determined to conquer Lviv and disobeyed orders to transfer his troops to Warsaw to aid Mikhail Tukhachevsky's troops. In the end, Poles stopped the Soviet advance and Stalin returned to Moscow. But at the Bolshevik conference, Trotsky accused Stalin of sabotage in his handling of war by disobeying troop transfer orders and Lenin joined Trotsky and no one spoke in defense of Stalin. 
this event likely led Stalin to despise other Bolsheviks and Mikhail Tukhachevsky, something that would affect their life and careers in the 1930s. The Polish-Soviet War ended in 1921 with a peace treaty. The Soviet government wanted to bring neighboring states under their control. Stalin believed, at least at the time, as People's Commissar of Nationalities, that every ethnic group should have the right to self-expression and governance through autonomous republics inside the larger Soviet state. In 1922, Lenin nominated, nominated Stalin as the party's new general secretary after Stalin sided with Lenin in opposition of Trotsky's call of abolishing trade unions. Yes, Trotsky wanted to abolish trade unions. Some party members, including Trotsky, didn't think much about Stalin becoming general secretary, while others expressed concern about Stalin getting too much workload and or power. This basically made Stalin Lenin's right-hand man and also pretty much made Stalin Lenin's successor, except in name. All Stalin had to do now was increase his supporters inside Bolsheviks against the more popular, more charismatic Leon Trotsky and Stalin did exactly that. In May 1922, Lenin suffered a massive stroke which left him paralyzed. Lenin was living in, in his dacha. Stalin would visit him regularly. Lenin asked Stalin to poison him twice so Lenin could commit suicide, but Stalin refused. During this, these visits, Lenin and Stalin would disagree on many things like foreign trade. They also disagreed on federation governance. Lenin wanted a proper union with Russia, being on equal terms with other neighboring Soviet socialist republics. But Stalin wanted more autonomous republics with centralized one-party state. Eventually, Lenin agreed, and this Russian Socialist Federation would become Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, USSR. Their disagreements led to distancing after Stalin criticized and abused Lenin's wife during a telephone conversation. After that, Lenin's testament was distributed among the governing figures in which Lenin criticized Stalin. It was as follows. Stalin is too rude and this defect, which is entirely acceptable in our milieu and in relationships amongst us as communists becomes unacceptable in the position of general secretary. I therefore propose to comrades they should devise a means of removing him from this job and should appoint to this job someone else who is distinguished from comrade Stalin. In all other respects, only by a single superior aspect that he should be more tolerant, more polite and more attentive towards comrades led less capricious, etc. Lenin died soon in January 1924. This testament, by the way, there was no evidence. This was later fake. This was, this was confirmed fake years later that Lenin's testament never existed. Lenin died in 1924. Stalin took charge of the funeral and was one of its pallbearers. Stalin sent wrong date of Lenin's funerals to Trotsky. The Politburo mummified Lenin's corpse and placed it in a mausoleum in Moscow's Red Square. Petrograd was renamed to Leningrad this year. 
during 13th party congress in may 1924 lenin's testament was read this was fake stalin offered his resignation as general secretary other bolsheviks including trotsky voted to keep him including trotsky as general secretary he was in charge of giving giving people jobs he gave jobs to new members of the communist party instead of other bolsheviks this earned him loyalty of more and more people inside the party after the death of vladimir lenin many candidates emerged to compete with stalin to become lenin's successor trotsky zinoviev on the left and rikov and bukharin on the right stalin had formed an anti trotsky alliance with zinoviev and kamenev and trotsky's were known as the left opposition bukharin supported stalin stalin had started removing supporters of trotsky zinoviev and kamenev in 1926 trotsky was joined by zinoviev and kamenev to form united opposition but they later stopped stalin argued for socialism in one country in his published works on quest of leninism while other bolsheviks argued for traditional marxist perspective of worldwide revolution in 1927 trotsky and zinoviev were removed from central committee some of the members of united opposition were rehabilitated and returned to government trotsky was sent to kazakhstan also the name of chinese communists arose stalin wanted chinese communists to ally with the nationalists to stop japanese imperialism but civil war broke out between chinese communists and nationalists in early 1928 stalin traveled to novosibirsk and alleged that kulaks were holding the grain holding the grain and ordered that the kulaks are to be arrested and their grain to be confiscated kulak was a derogatory term used to describe peasants who were most successful after all the peasants were lifted out of serfdom stalin also declared that class war between proletariat and their enemies would become worse then show trials began to intimidate opposition to stalin's socialism show trials at its sixth congress in july 1928 Stalin informed delegates that the main threat to socialism came not from the right but from non-Marxist socialists and social democrats, whom he called social fascists. Also, the first five-year plan began in 1928 and focused on industrialization. Stalin's close ally Bukharin expressed concern about Stalin's policies and tried to get support in the party to oppose the reforms. In 1928 the Politburo announced collectivization of agriculture kulaks were banned from joining them and many peasants joined the collective farms like kolkhozy and sokhots either out of fear or to support or to support them production declined as the peasants in collective farms and bureaucrats lacked the farming expertise that kulaks had Bukharin was removed from Politburo. Stalin's son Yakov tried to commit suicide but was unsuccessful. Trotsky was deported from Soviet Union. After Trotsky left the Soviet Union, he went to Kentucky, USA and started KFC in 1930. But look at them. How how similar they look. Trotsky 
and Colonel Sanders. Sanders, I think that's the name. So weird. In in 1930, the Politburo approved the liquidation of Kulak class. Protests broke out across the Soviet Union, particularly in in Ukraine and southern parts of Soviet Union. These protests were suppressed by the Red Army. Kulaks were sent to gulags, gulags to gulags, for the forced labor instead of collective farms, and as a result, the agricultural output was reduced. In mid 1930, more than 300,000, 300,000 households were affected by the de-gulagization policy. In 1931 and 32, the production failed. This, along with export of grain to other countries, to industrialize USSR, brought lack of reserve stocks caused a famine. In 1932 and 33, Ukraine was affected the worst, along with Kazakhstan. Food supply was prioritized for urban industrial workforce over collective farmers and villagers who produced the grain. No one, especially Ukrainians, were allowed to leave their native villages, and passport system was introduced. However, some managed to leave and reached Poland, and reports of famine spread throughout the world. Garrett Jones was the first Western general journalist to report the devastation. Aid was offered by other countries. But USSR refused and denied the existence of famine. Somewhere between seven to nine million people died throughout the entire USSR in Soviet famine of 1932 and 33. Stalin's second wife, Nadezhda, committed suicide in 1932. Reasons speculated are ad- suspected adultery, real situation of average USSR citizens, etc. The second five-year plans had production quotas removed. This five-year plan focused on improving living conditions and arms production. As Adolf Hitler became Chancellor of Germany in May 1933, Stalin released many people from prison who were convicted of minor offenses. Stalin initiated confidential communications with Hitler in October 1933. Stalin admired Hitler. Especially how he eliminated his rivals in the night of the Long Knives, he remarked, "Did you hear what happened in Germany? Some fellow that Hitler, splendid, that's a deed of some skill." But he also recognized the threat posed by fascists in Europe. He also sought to improve foreign relations, and USSR secured membership of League of Nations. In 1934, his new dacha was built. Nine kilometer from Kremlin, and it and it became its primary residence. In December 1934, the Great Terror began in USSR after the death of Leningrad party boss Sergei Kirov. In 1935, he ordered the NKVD to expel suspected counter-revolutionaries from urban areas. He issued a decree establishing NKVD troikas, which could meet out rulings without involving the courts. In May 1935, the Soviets signed a con- signed a treaty of mutual assistance with France and Czechoslovakia. At International Communist Congress in July-August 1935, the Soviet government encouraged Marxist-Leninists to unite with other leftists against fascism. Stalin's children visited Stalin's mother in 1935, with Yakov translating between Georgian and Russian 
Vasily and Svetlana. Stalin finally visited his mother for final time on October of 17, 1935. They discussed Stalin's work and his mother replied that she wanted him to become a priest. In 1935, he began using a new dacha provided for him by Lakova at Novi Afon. By 1936, about 90% of households involved in agriculture were part of the collective farms. Spanish Civil War broke out in July 1936. Soviets sent aircraft, tanks and troops to support the Republican faction. The first Moscow trial took place in August 1936 and Kamenev and Zinoviev were among those who were tried and executed. In 1936, he had Kholodnya Dacha built on the Abkhazian coast designed by Miron Maltsinov. On 25th of November 1936, Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan signed the Anti-Comintern Pact and Italy joined later. The second Moscow trial took place in January 1937. Around July 1937, the Politburo ordered a purge of anti-Soviet elements in society. Stalin and Yezhov signed Order Number 00447. Stalin also initiated national operations, the ethnic cleansing of non-Soviet ethnic groups through exile. The Soviet Union and China signed a non-aggression pact in August and Stalin aided United Communist and KMT Chinese Front against Japanese. In 1938, the history of the Communist Party of Soviet Union also known as the short course, was the rele- was released. Third Moscow trials took place in March 1938, in which Bukharin and Rikov were accused of involvement in the alleged Trotsky's Dinoviev white terrorist plot. In the alleged Trotsky's Dinoviev white terrorist plot and sentenced to death. By now, Stalin controlled the entire Politburo. By 1938, 680,000 to 2 million people died in purges. So this was, I took it, basically took this from Wikipedia to give a concise summary. Now I want to give my analysis of this whole thing. Thing. Let's start with the most obvious. Was Trotsky the real successor to Lenin? And did Stalin steal it? No, contrary to popular belief, Leon Trotsky was not Lenin's successor. Lenin specifically appointed Stalin as the general secretary. Both Lenin and Leon Trotsky were more of a visionary types like Hitler rather than organizers. Trotsky was more popular in general public as he has much better public speaker persona than Stalin. Trotsky's intellectual persona was more appealing to peasants than Stalin's gangster persona. But even Stalin was an intellectual but was not as good as Trotsky at articulating his ideas. Lenin chose Stalin because of Stalin's organizing skill. Stalin was more competent in day-to-day administrative work than Trotsky. Clearly, Lenin trusted Stalin not Trotsky, Stalin. 
with all that power and responsibility when Lenin appointed Stalin as the general secretary. When Lenin and Stalin fell out, a letter came out called Lenin's Testament. The authenticity of this document is questionable, but the letter, real or fake, called for Stalin's replacement with someone who is just like Stalin but less rude. Stalin offered to resign multiple times but was voted to keep his position. Sometimes even by Stalin's rivals, Zinoviev, Bukharin, Kamanev and Trotsky. Even they voted in favor of Stalin a lot of times. So Lenin trusted Stalin and other Bolsheviks favored Stalin. But Trotsky was popular with general public. The whole Trotsky was an idealist and Stalin was a psychopath was, was a narrative that was spread by Trotsky and his supporters. This narrative got popular in the West because leftists idolized Trotsky and capitalists used that narrative of Trotsky's to discredit the Soviet Union and communism. Of course, it is easier for everyone to accept good versus evil narrative than accept in reality. And that reality is Leon Trotsky was just as psychopathic as Joseph Stalin. And Stalin was just as idealistic as Trotsky. I will elaborate on this later. The term Holodomor means to kill by starvation. It refers to 1932-33 famine in Soviet Ukraine. The term implies intentional killing referring to various Soviet policies like rejection of aid, confiscation of grain and restriction of population movement. When Stalin introduced the first five-year plan, he wanted to catch up with industrial capabilities of European countries. He famously said that Soviet Union was 50 to 100 years behind and must catch up within 10 years or it will cease to exist. Both Stalin and Trotsky were opposed to Lenin's new economic policies and couldn't see what someone as st stubborn as Lenin could. Since Trotsky voiced his opposition to Lenin, Stalin supported it while Lenin was around. After Stalin rose to power, he restarted the collectivization policy that Lenin had paused. When collectivization started, a class of successful peasants resisted it. They were called gulags. Some were sent to collective farms, but most of those gulags were sent to gulags, the prison camps, the forced slave labor camps. When you send your most knowledgeable and productive workers to prison, your output will fall. And that's exactly what happened when collectivization was introduced. Add to that bad weather and arrogance of Soviet government, who thought production would be much higher that they decided to increase export of their grain to help pay for industrialization and you'll get Soviet famine of 1932-33. The harvest fell by about 60% of target food production. Food quotas were introduced. Remember, communism is workers' utopia and not rural people's utopia. Workers in factories were prioritized because of food quotas just like all other government quotas, prioritize bureaucrats in government over others. Rural areas were hit much harder than cities. Ukraine has always been the land of farmers, 
Ukraine has been famously known as the breadbasket of Europe, which means most of Ukraine was rural. So when production failed because of collectivization and execution and imprisonment of gulags, Ukraine was hit hard. Imprisonment of Imprisonment of gulags in gulags, Ukraine was hit hard. People in rural areas, out of desperation, tried to save some grain for themselves. Soviet Union couldn't export as much grain as they promised, and Soviets were having none of it. So local Soviet Ukrainian government and Marxist activists decided to search people's homes to confiscate any grains that they were holding. Fueled by hunger, they were much more fueled by the fear of getting arrested or shot and or the hatred of kulaks. If people were found hold, holding grain, they were beaten or raped or, and shot or sent to gulags. Report of these activists and bureaucrats stealing other items from people's homes were also widespread. People who criticized the government were also shot and sent to gulags. Some Ukrainians managed to escape to Poland and news of famine spread across the world. Other nations offered food aid to USSR, but it was rejected. Maybe because of international propaganda reasons, but more likely because no bureaucrat wanted to tell Stalin how bad the famine was and get shot and therefore try to downplay the famine. And therefore try to downplay, downplay the famine. As the news of famine started spreading, passport system was introduced to ban Ukrainians from leaving Ukraine. Ukraine basically became an open air prison. While Ukrainian cities filled with workers and bureaucrats working on the Marxist utopia had to go on a diet, rural areas received almost no food. As food started to run out, Ukrainians turned to other food sources. People ate tree barks, frogs, insects, etc. Some tried to eat leather boots. Some, some of them consumed grain from horse manure. Slowly, these starving people had nothing left to eat other than themselves. So they turned against each other and tried to steal whatever food other people were hiding or stolen from farms. People were now struggling not just physically but morally as well. And to survive, they turned towards cannibalism. Cannibalism became the new normal. First they feasted on dead bodies, but later they turned against each other. There are also photos of human meat vendors. Parents had to make the most devastating decisions. Disabled children became obvious targets of their families. Some parents would kill their youngest children, so they and their older children would survive. Some parents who were dying instructed kids to feed on their dead bodies. Some parents who didn't want their children to starve become cannibals, simply left them as they couldn't watch them suffer. Over 2500 people were convicted of cannibalism. Cannibalism was so widespread that the regime had to produce posters, posters which declared to eat your own children is a barbarian act. More than 20,000 people died every day. The next year as production increased, situation improved and this terrible tragedy was over. The more you read about Holodomor, 
the Holocaust, British famines in India and Ireland, and the North Korean famine in 1990s, the more obvious it becomes that starvation is the worst form of suffering. It strips humans of their dignity and eventually humanity. It reduces them to lowest forms of animal and all things human, creativity, intelligence, culture is replaced by desire just to eat something. Thanks to advances in science and mass production capabilities of industrialization, starvation is almost a thing of the past now. There are still parts of the world which experience famine and starvation, but they are a result of government policies and international politics. And Holodomor was a result of government policies. Was it a genocide? Historians debate whether Holodomor was genocide or mass murder. The official UN definition of genocide is any of the following act committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial or religious group such as killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in part or in whole, imposing measures intended to prevent births within group, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. By official de definition, the Holodomor genocide question is unanswered as it basically comes down to the question of intention. This definition came after World War II and USSR most likely had some influence in defining genocide to exclude political and social classes. Otherwise, Stalin would definitely be charged for his policies during collectivization and purges. As for Holodomor, Ukraine wasn't the only part of USSR that was hit. Another major region was Kazakhstan, Caucasus, and southern Russia. How much was the local government lying and downplaying the famine to avoid being shot or sent to gulags? How much did Stalin knew and how much of that knowledge was truth if it wasn't genocide? Stalin and Bolsheviks were definitely committing crimes against humanity and the intention will, be, will continue to be debated. For example, sealing of Ukrainian borders might have been done to prevent news of famine spreading or it was done to prevent spreading of famine-related diseases in cities or other parts of the Soviet Union. Another example, all the policies implemented could be ordered by Stalin as he held that much power or they were implemented by Soviet Ukrainian government to downplay the famine. But whether intentional mass murder, genocide, or disastrous collectivization policies and subsequent neglect of government, crimes against humanity, it is obvious that Stalin and Soviet government of that time were responsible for deaths of somewhere between 2 to 10 million Soviet citizens. The Purges Let's talk about Lenin's stance on factionalism. In the 10th Party Congress, Lenin had proposed a ban on factional groupings. 
inside the party as they were as they went against the organizing principles of bolshevism democratic centralism democratic centralism means that in any topic everyone has freedom of speech to express their opinion but once a decision is reached everyone must uphold the decision of majority if after having lost the debate or given the issue factional groupings will still continue to insist on their own policy despite party majority deciding against it they would be expelled from the party either accept party's principle or be expelled in the practical struggle and factionalism every organization of party must take strict measures to prevent all factional actions ensure strict discipline within the party and in all soviet work and to secure maximum unanimity in eliminating all factionalism lenin's ban on faction factions led to suppression of various kinds of factional activities from syndicalist trotskyist and left communist faction led by bukharin and other groups these groupings were forced to accept democratic centralism and party discipline if they wanted to stay in the party we move forward to 1927 when stalin has outmaneuvered his opponents his policies are being accepted he is recognized as the rightful leader of the party and the majority backs him trotsky's left opposition has been ideologically defeated zinoviev and kamenev who previously had been going back and forth about trotsky made an alliance of convenience with him and his supporters this group became known as the united opposition and as a, an opposition grouping is tolerated within party for a while but in october 1927 united opposition stages a demonstration separate from rest of bolshevik party officially to commemorate the revolution but to also criticize the political line of party majority and central committee led by stalin this is recognized as factionalism by the party and many members of united opposition are forced to self criticize or be expelled zinoviev and kamenev capitulate and are allowed to stay trotsky refuses and is expelled he is deported from the country year a year later in exile trotsky began begins to write books and articles against the soviet union's current leadership he accuses the soviet government of various wrongdoings and claims that he himself should have become the leader so what is the evidence of evidence of trotsky's block in 1980 preeminent trotsky researcher pierre bruer was granted access to harvard trotsky archives there he made a startling discovery among the other documents he found items of correspondence between trotsky his son leon sedov and trotsky's secretary van hijenort in this correspondence bruer found that trotsky and his allies were discussing first the formation and then running a secret organization inside the soviet union this corroborated the soviet accusation at least to some degree more shocking to devoted trotskyists like bruer was that trotsky and sedov had lied to all their supporters and indeed the entire world 
the opposition of block opposition block of Trotsky's was entirely real, not a Stalinist invention. It was then discovered by Har that the Harvard Trotsky archive had been purged, items had been removed. This was a closed archive, meaning only certain Trotsky's researchers had been previously given access, mainly Isaac Duisher, a famous Trotskyist who wrote, wrote a massive biography on Trotsky's life. Trotsky's wife had also been given access. They formed the most obvious candidates for censoring of archive of sensitive materials. The proposal for a block seems to me completely acceptable. But if the materials left in the archive proved at least a part of allegations at Moscow trial, then what about missing materials? Trotsky, his son and his secretary vehemently denied existence of the block, claiming it to be a Stalinist lie. Trotsky's secretary never mentioned it in his memoirs written well after Trotsky's death. Same goes for Trotsky's biggest advocate, Isaac Duisher, who was allowed to go through the archive and yet continued to insist there was no secret underground organization or block. In 1934, head of Leningrad government organization of the Soviet Communist Party, Sergei Kirov, was assassinated by a gunman. The killer, a party member, Leonid Nikolaev, attempted to commit suicide before being captured but failed. In the interrogation, he initially claimed to be a lone gunman, but eventually testified to being a part of a conspiracy or of political assassinations by the underground Trotsky's Genoviaite bloc. In response to these grave allegations, Trotsky accused Stalin of masterminding the murder himself. However, there is no evidence to justify Trotsky's claim. Both Khrushchevite de-Stalinization and Gorbachev's glasnost era policies attempt to compile evidence that Stalin killed Kirov, but nothing was found. In fact, Kirov was a close collaborator of Stalin's and naturally a target for politically motivated terrorists. Over the years, there were three, perhaps four, blue ribbon investigations of the Kirov killing. Khrushchev and Gorbachev wanted to pin it on Stalin and all of them handpicked their investigations accordingly. Having been able to acquaint myself with the archived materials from these efforts, it is clear that none of the three investigations produced desired conclusions. In particular, the Khrushchev and Gorbachev era efforts involved massive combing of archives and interviews and failed to conclude that Stalin was behind the killing. Stalin's effort, of course, concluded that the opposition did it and was the basis of Moscow trials. There was no obvious reason why Stalin would have wanted to falsely accuse the oppositionists of this crime committed at this point. The Trotsky's underground bloc had not been under uncovered yet, and certainly Stalin had no idea that Zinoviev Kamenev were members in it. It was largely the Kirov murder that sparked the investigation leading to these discoveries. The oppositionists were politically powerless and marginalized marginalized in the legal party and state apparatus of the USSR. They had no chance to, to challenge Stalin's political line. 
they were dangerous in one capacity only as members of an illegal anti-Soviet conspiracy. However, Stalin did not know of any such conspiracy at the time, so why frame the opposition bloc? Indeed, he didn't even know the opposition bloc truly existed until it was discovered by NKVD in connection with Kirov's investigation. It is, is it conceivable that one of the leaders of the party gets shot by a lone gunman? Yes, but considering the facts, the other option seems far more likely. There is no good evidence to doubt Nikolaev's admission of guilt, but could, one could merely say it alone is inconclusive. We'll return to this later. After the Kirov murder and discovery of secret block of Trotsky's, the charges against conspirators kept on mounting. Zinoviev and Kamenev were among the first to be tried, already arrested in connection with Kirov murder. However, they would be tried in connection with a broader conspiracy to overthrow government. Charges against defendants included sabotage, espionage, conspiring with foreign powers, and planning and committing political assassinations. Alexander Zinoviev, no relation to Grigory Zinoviev, was a political dissident in USSR and was eventually exiled from the country. In 1939, he was accused of a plot to murder Stalin as a part of underground organization, but was eventually released. He spoke of those years in, after the fall of Soviet Union, actually admitting to his guilt. I was already confirmed anti-Stalinist at, at the age of 17. The idea of killing Stalin filled my thoughts and feelings. We studied the technical possibilities of an attack. We even practiced. If they had con condemned me to death in 1939, their decision would have been just I had made up a plan to kill Stalin. Wasn't that a crime? When Stalin was still alive, I saw things differently. Until Stalin's death, I was an anti-Stalinist. The fact that he was arrested by NKVD but was released due to lack of conclusive evidence or confession argues against the idea the oppositionists were merely framed by the Soviet government. Not only was Alexander Zinoviev released and therefore not framed, but he also admits his guilt, being an unwitting part of an underground group. This seems to demonstrate the investigation was fair, the accused was innocent until proven guilty. Clearly, the notion of political assassinations was not invented by Stalin. Alexander Zinoviev admits his guilt. He wasn't tortured into confessing by the NKVD. The NKVD doesn't even exist anymore. Despite their best efforts, Khrushchev, Gorbachev, capitalists, nobody has been able to find evidence that Stalin had Kirov killed. Trotsky's claim is therefore false. Nikolaev, the assassin, confessed to being a part of an opposition group, exactly like Alexander Zinoviev did. Mark Zaborowski, an NKVD agent, managed to infiltrate Trotsky's organization and became Sedov's second-in-command. He reported to Moscow that Sedov and his followers were planning to assassination, assassinate Stalin and Voroshilov. Trotsky and Sedov's staff were thro thoroughly infiltrated and Sedov's closest collaborator in 1936. Magzor Zaborovsky is said to have been an NKVD agent. In 1936, the 1932 bloc would have been interpreted by NKVD 
as a terrorist plot. Jules Humbert Drotz, a Swiss communist and political ally of Bukharin, wrote in his memoirs about their last meeting in 1929. Bukharin told him they were planning to assassinate Stalin. He had objected and they had split over this. His memoirs were published in 1971, well after de-Stalinization had claimed Bukharin was innocent. Before leaving, I went to see Bukharin for one last time, not knowing whether I could see him again upon my return. We had a long and frank conversation. He brought me up to date with the contacts made by his group with Zinoviev Kamenev faction in order to coordinate the struggle against the power of Stalin. I did not hide from him that I did not approve of this liaison of opposition. The struggle against Stalin is not a political program. This block is a block without principles who will crumble away before achieving any results. Bukharin also told me that they had decided to utilize individual terror in order to rid themselves of Stalin. And on this point, as well, I expressed my reservation. Bukharin doubtlessly had understood that I would not bind myself blindly to his faction, whose sole program was to make Stalin disappear. This was our last meeting. G.A. Tokev was a member of conspiratorial anti-communist group within Soviet Red Army who defected to British in 1948. He wrote about his activities openly and unrepentantly. His group was connected to other opposition underground groups, met with Bukharin, and knew about Trotsky's Zinoviev conspiracy against Kirov in Leningrad. Stalin aimed at one-party dictatorship and complete centralization. Bukharin envisaged several parties and even nationalist parties, stood for various maximum for maximum of decentralization. He was also in favor of vesting authorities to various constituent republics and thought that more important of these should even control their own foreign relations. By 1936, Bukharin was approaching the social democratic standpoint of left-wing socialists of the West. Bukharin wanted us to act with greater determination. We were to snatch the initiative from Hands of Stalin, Molotov, Kirov, Triumvirate. Tokayev unrepentantly said that Kirov brought the assassination upon himself by his work against the Zinovievs in Leningrad and purging the party of right-wingers. The principal initiators of 1933 purge were Stalin and Kirov, and of the two, Kirov was more responsible. He had already tried out purging in his own sphere in Leningrad. Indeed, this is what cost him in his life. I have good reason to put on record that it was not 1934, as the official Kremlin reports of the trial, the so-called Leningrad Center suggests, but in spring of 1933 that his assassination was first mooted, and that by men who should have known better. It was not remarkable that oppositionists of Leningrad fastened their hatred on him. When the assassin Nikolaev, at his first cross-examination, declared that Leningrad opposition group had its own special accounts to settle with Kirov, he was only being just. Our group had planned to assassinate Kirov and Kalinin, the president of the Soviet Union. Finally, it was another group that assassinated Kirov. In 1934, there was a plot to start a revolution by arresting the whole of Stalinist-packed 70th Congress of the party. 
a comrade from the group, Klaya Yeryomenko, proposed in mid-1936 to kill Stalin. There had been no less than 15 attempts to assassinate Stalin. None had got near to success. Each had cost many brave lives. The right-wing conspirators of Tokayev regretted that Bukharin was caught. The Trotsky's Radek gave himself up and confessed to NKVD. Radek provided the culminating evidence on which Bukharin was arrested, tried and shot. We had known of Radek's treachery at least a fortnight before Bukharin's arrest on October 16, 1936, and we tried to save Bukharin. Inside the Soviet Union, there exists a Trotsky's Genovev underground conspiring to overthrow the Soviet government. This was discovered by NKVD. Naturally, everyone knew there were ex-Trotskyists, opposition groups and other similar forces in the country. However, this new group was different. It was an illegal conspiratorial bloc, not a political opposition. Also shocking that old opposition leaders like Zinoviev Kamenev were amongst its leaders, together with ex-Trotskyists like Smarnov. Indeed, these ex-Trotskyists were in reality still Trotskyists, only secretly. Trotsky continued to claim that he had no agreement with the oppositions and had no contact with them since 1927. This turned out to be false. The bloc itself was in routine contact with Trotsky. Much of the NKVD in investigative material are still classified in Russia, so we do not know all the evidence they had. We have some, test, some of the testimonies describing the Trotsky's blocks in its contact with its contact with Trotsky and naming some of its members which are confirmed by material from Harvard Trotsky archives. Zinoviev, Kamenev, Smarnov and others were directly named as members of the conspiratorial bloc in Trotsky's correspondence discovered by Trotsky's historian Pierre Brouet. Radek and Sokolnikov were named in the mailing receipts of Trotsky's correspondence, which were discovered in Trotsky archive by Getty. The actual letter had been letters had been removed from the archive by a person or, or persons unknown before it was open to researchers. The left opposition was always an intransigent opponent of behind-the-scenes combination and agreement. For it, the question of a bloc could only consist of an open political act in full view of masses based on its political platform. The history of 13-year struggle of left opposition is proof of that. Brewer commented on Sedov's passage. This text, written right after first Moscow trial, stands in complete contradiction to 1932 document in secret ink in Sedov's handwriting and that arrests to the existence of Bloch and of the negotiations he was carrying with Trotsky's and in the USSR. With Trotsky's letter approving formation of the bloc as an alliance, not a unification, with the comments with comments from Trotsky. On July 11, 1926, during violent debates that took place before collectivization, Bukharin held a clandestine meeting with Kamenev. He stated that he was ready to give up Stalin for Kamenev and Zinoviev and hope for a bloc to remove Stalin. In his confession, Bukharin said, the trio became an illegal counter-revolutionary organization. Close to this illegal center was Yenukitsch, 
who had contact with this center right through Tromsky, who had contact with this center through Tomsky about the autumn of 1932, next stage of in the development of right organization began, namely the transition of tactics of a forcible overthrow of Soviet power. Terrorism steering a course of, for direct alliance with Trotsky's. Around this time, the idea of palace coup was maturing in right circles. This was when a political bloc with Kamanev and Sinoviev originated. In this period, we had meetings with Siritsov, with Lominets. In the summer of 1932, Piatkov told me of his meeting with Sadov concerning Trotsky's policy of terrorism. We can be certain Bukharin spoke fairly and accurately, even as even evidence outside Soviet Union archives corroborated. Zinoviev, Kamenev, etc. were named in Trotsky's letters, which were discovered in 1980. is confirmed as a member of right-wing conspiracy, also by Tokayev. You are wrong to tie the fate of your country to countries which are old and finished, such as France and Britain. We ought to turn towards new Germany. Germany will assume the leading position on the continent of Europe. Pro-German statements by, made by Tukashevsky in Western European countries during his trip to Britain became known in France and Czechoslovakia. The information of that such an important figure as Tukashevsky took a pro-German stance caused a grave concern in Paris and Prague. Two governments notified the Soviet government about Tukashevsky's statements. The Moscow press announced that the accused generals had been in pay of Hitler and agreed to help him get the Ukraine. This charge was fairly widely believed in foreign military circles and was later substantiated by revelations made abroad. Czech military circles seemed to be especially well informed. Czech officials in Prague bragged to me later that their military men had been the first to discover and to complain to Moscow that Czech military secrets known to the Russians through the mutual aid alliance were revealed by Tukashevsky to the German high command. People of the French Duchesne Bureau told me long ago that Tukashevsky was pro-German and the Czechs told me extraordinary story of Tukashevsky's visit to Prague. Prague, visit to Prague, when towards the end of the banquet he had gotten rather drunk, he blurted out that an agreement with Hitler was the only hope for both Czechoslovakia and Russia. And he then proceeded to abuse Stalin. The Czechs did not fail to report this to the Kremlin, and that was the end of Chukachevsky and so many of its followers. The NKVD discovered a network of traitors inside the Soviet Red Army centered around Marshal Tukhachevsky. In his letter, Marshal Budyani describes the interrogation of one of the members of the military conspiracy. Primakov very stubbornly denied that he led a terrorist group consisting of Schmidt, Kuzmichev and others against Comrade Voroshilov. He denied this on a basis that he said Trotsky had interested him. Primakov with a more serious trust to organize an armed uprising in Leningrad. Primakov did not, however, deny that he had indeed earlier led a terrorist group and for that purpose had recommended Schmidt to the post of war 
post of commander of mechanized corps in connection with this special assignment of trotsky's primakov worked under 25th cavalry division with the divisional commander zibin according to him zibin was assigned to meet trotsky at the border once the rebels had take over the, taken over the leningrad both voroshilov and budyani were close, close associate of stalin if they had framed tukashevsky together they would not discuss the investigation in the manner that they do also if the accused primakov was framed he would have probably not insist that he was not currently a member of terrorist group but instead a military conspiratorial one as both are equally illegal on top of that primakov admits to being a part of a terrorist group previously not just currently this lends credibility to his testimony both the investigative materials and budyan is later were never intended for publication and didn't come out until decades later so lying in them would be pointless in this connection the shvernik report should be mentioned it was a report compiled by khrushchev era commission whose goal was to gather material that could be used to disprove the guilt of tukashevsky to prove that stalin had framed him unfortunately for khrushchev the commission had failed to find such evidence but instead found further evidence of a tukashevsky's guilt among some of the materials discussed in the shvernik report is a telegram from japanese military attache to his superior in japan testifying to secret contact with a representative of marshal tukashevsky corroborating the moscow trial testimony the shvernik report went unpublished at the time as it didn't achieve what khrushchev wanted it the notion that there could have been a military conspiracy is deemed unbelievable by trotsky's and anti-communists they dismissed evidence against tukashevsky and said his testimony cannot be trusted i will point out the case of general vlasov who defected from the german red army to german side in 1914 1941 saying he wanted to build a new russia without bolsheviks or capitalists this was eerily similar to tukashevsky rhetoric vlasov was never arrested by soviet and gave this testimony of his own volition from the safety of the west another such example was colonel tokayev who defected to british the case of tukashevsky is still classified the last known person to have betrayed is colonel viktor alkanes relative of one of the people involved in trial he said my grandfather and tukashevsky were friends and grandfather was on the judicial panel that both judged judged both tukashevsky and aiderman my interest in this case became even stronger after the well known publication of procurer viktorov who wrote that ayakov alkanes was very active at the trial harassed the accused but in the trial transcript everything was just the opposite grandfather only asked two or three questions during the trial but the strangest thing is the behavior of the accused newspaper accounts claim that all defendants denied their guilt completely but according to the transcript they fully admitted the guilt idealized that admission of guilt guilt itself can be the result of torture but in transcript it was something else entirely a huge amount of detail long dialogues accusations of one another a mass of precision it is simply impossible to stage manage something like this 
I know nothing about the nature of conspiracy, but of the fact there really exists a conspiracy within the Red Army and that Tukhachevsky participated in it. I am convinced of it today. I am completely convinced today. During the last years of his life, long after de-Stalinization, Molotov spoke about this issue in an interview with in an interview with Felix Chue published in 1993 as Molotov remembers. The Khrushchev government had made de-Stalinization policy official. Similarly, in the Gorbachev years, it was political suicide to oppose the anti-Stalin line. However, Molotov did so anyway. He testified to the accuracy of find, trial findings. The right wing already had a channel to Hitler even before this. Trotsky was definitely connected him. That's beyond any doubt. Many of the ranking military officers were also involved. That goes without saying. He was accused of being a German agent, Molotov. He hurried with the plans for a coup. Both Krestinsky and Rosenglotz, Rosenglotz testified to that. It makes sense. He feared that he was at that point of being arrested and he could no longer put things off. And there was no one else he could rely on except the Germans. The sequence of events is plausible. I consider Tukhachevsky a most dangerous conspirator in the military who was caught only at the last minute. Had he not been apprehended, the consequences could have been catastrophic. He was most popular in the army. Did everyone who was charged or executed take part in conspiracy hatched by Tukhachevsky? Some were certainly involved, but as to whether Trukhachevsky and his group in the military were connected with Trotskyists and rightists and were preparing for a coup, there is no doubt. Is it really likely that Molotov was lying? For what possible reasons? To defend himself? Surely not. These kind of, these kind of statements not only made against the Western narrative, but also against Gorbachev narrative. Some will portray Molotov as a careerist, hopeless yes-man, who agreed to all of Stalin's proposals, merely to stay in power. But here he was attesting to the correctness of their policy, even though he had nothing to gain from doing so. Quite the opposite. Obviously, he must have believed he was telling the truth, and he chose to tell it, even it meant trouble for him. Chuev also interviewed Kaganovich and it was published in 1992. Kaganovich corroborated with Molotov's statement. Here is what he said. Sure. Perhaps there is, there was misreporting in the organs of NKVD. Kaganovich, exactly. This is what I would like to tell you. Was it possible to check every detail? This was indeed a most complicated question. Where we were sure of the person's innocence, we defended him. In fact, I also went by this principle. It was only 20 years after the revolution after all. White officers Kulak and Nepman were all alive. Do you think there could have been a counter-revolutionary sabotage in 1930s? Kaganovich. Of course, there was such a threat. Not only this, there were also instances of terrorism. The fifth column was at our doorstep. Without destroying them, we could not have won the war. The Germans would have beaten us to pulp. The one other point is worth mentioning. Tukhachevsky's guilt is heavily implied by documents from the German Foreign Office discovered by historian 
Frederick Carston in 17. However, Carston himself proposed the theory that documents were the result of an attempt by the SS to friend to Kaczewski, presumably to weaken the USSR and cause destabilization. But if he was framed by the SS, it means Soviets didn't deliberately frame him, but merely wrongly believed him guilty. Karsten's findings disprove the notion of Stalin framing Tukhachevsky. The marshal was framed by the Germany or was actually guilty. Some critics have claimed the scarcity of documents from German archives as a proof of the Tukhachevsky conspiracy that is wasn't real. This is a mistake in logic. In any case, even these few documents only emerged in 1974, well after Hitler's regime had collapsed. The scarcity of the German documents proved very little, and the documents we have argue in favor of Marshall's guilt. And yet, even if one dismisses all the Soviet evidence and then dismisses the German evidence, we still have compatible and corroborative evidence from Japan, Czechoslovakia, and other sources. After the discovery of Trotsky's Genovia plot, Nazedna Krupskaya, Lenin's wife, an old Bolshevik and a revolutionary in her own right, wrote about the subject. Trotsky is now standing on path of organizing terrorist acts against Stalin, Voroshilov, and other members of Politburo, who are helping the masses to build socialism. It is not a matter of chance, therefore that the unprincipled block of Kamenev and Zinoviev together with Trotsky have pushed them from one step to another into deep abyss of an unheard betrayal of Lenin's work, work of the masses, the ideals of socialism. Trotsky, Zinoviev, Kamenev and their entire band of killers acted together with German fascists, entered into a pact with Gestapo. These were grave charges indeed. Trotsky, from his side, entirely denied all of them. After the Second World War, the leader of Finnish communists, O.W. Kisinen, said, The ruling circus of the imperialist countries didn't limit themselves to the ideological struggle against socialism. Alongside it, they in engaged in provocational ag attacks against the Soviet Union and organized treacherous sabotage and wrecking activity, which was carried out in the production facilities of the Soviet Union by bourgeoisie experts, Trotskyists, Zinoviards, Bukharinets, and nationalists. The jo diary of Georgi Dimitrov, supporter of Stalin and head of Comintern, after 1935, was published in 2003. Dimitrov met with Stalin, Molotov, Koganovich, Voroshilov, in the Kremlin, regarding, the, among other things, the interrogation of accused Sokolnikov. Stalin, Molotov, Kaganovich, Voroshilov, Exchange of Opinions of Chinese Events, French Question. Interrogation of Sokolnikov, 12th December 1936. Question. Thus, the investigation concludes that Trotsky abroad and the center of bloc within the USSR entered into negotiations with Hitlerite and Japanese governments with following aims. First, to provoke a war by Germany and Japan against USSR. Second, to promote defeat of USSR in that war and to take advantage of that defeat to achieve transfer of power in the USSR to the government bloc. Third, on behalf of the future bloc government to guarantee territorial and economic concessions 
to Hitlerite and Japanese government. Do you confirm this? Reply. Yes, I confirm it. Question. Do you admit that this activity by the bloc is tantamount to outright resent against the motherland? Reply. Yes, I admit it. Sokolnikov was one of the people named in the mail receipts found by Getty in Trotsky's archive. So we know he was part of Trotsky's group. His testimony verifies the fact that already came out with connection with Tukashevsky. This information was not used in the public trial. It is now available via Dimitrov's diary. Question is, would Stalin, Dimitrov, Voroshilov and others really have so framed Sokolnikov? We already knew, we already know Sokolnikov was at least guilty of conspiring with Trotsky. And the picture painted by Dimitrov's diary is that Stalin and others genuinely curious about the proceeding of the NKVD and investigation. Dimitrov's diary was only made public in 2003. If he wanted to lie, to cover for Stalin, then he would have done so publicly. Not in his personal diary that no one ever saw until the collapse of the USSR. As much of the material from Soviet archive still remain classified, we don't have too many documents when, where Stalin and his associates discuss these matters privately among themselves. However, we do have some. In June 1937, on eve of CC Plenum, Trotsky sent a telegram to the Central Executive Committee, the highest organ of Soviet government. In this telegram, he urged CAC to betray Stalin and support him. The telegram says, Policy is leading the, to the complete collapse of in, internal as well as external. Stop. Only salvation is radical turn towards Soviet democracy beginning with open review of the last trial. Stop. Along this road, I offer complete support. Trotsky. This telegram didn't reach CAC before being intercepted, intercepted by NKVD, which, was, which it handed to Stalin. Upon reading it, he wrote on it the following words, Ugly spy, brazen spy of Hitler. Stalin then not only signed his name under it, but gave it to Molotov, Voroshilov and others. After reading the telegram, they signed their names in agreement with Stalin's assessment. If Stalin and his collaborators Molotov and Voroshilov were truly framing Trotsky, then would they really call Trotsky a spy of Hitler, even when no one else was present? This seems unlikely. The telegram was never made public, not to mention Stalin's and his associates' comments on it were never made public. The obvious explanation is that they truly believed Trotsky was in league with Hitler. The authenticity of the telegram has been verified. The question is what was Trotsky's plan? It seems that he was preparing a stage for his return to power. Once the Soviet Union took heavy losses in a war with Germany, the Trotsky's conspirators would cause pro-Trotsky rebellions among the troops even having one of the five Soviet marshals and few generals on their side. The, outs the ousted political opposition in, consisting of Trotsky, Zinoviev, Kamenev and Smirnov would take over. They would make peace with foreign powers, guaranteeing them heavy concessions, get rid of Stalin and his supporters, the so-called bureaucracy, and implement what Trotsky considered Soviet democracy. Is it really a democracy? I don't think so. We also have 
for instance, written comment by Stalin criticizing the work of NKVD. Upon reading the interrogation report for accused Ikolov's wife, Sokolovskaya, according to NKVD report, the wife to the interrogator. During past five years, Ikolov has been undertaking active participation in the underground anti-Soviet organization that stood on Trotsky's position. To which Stalin remarked, what's important is not Akalov's and Sokolovskaya's past activity, but their sabotage and Estonia's work during the past year and recent ones of 1937. We also need to know why the both of these scoundrels were going abroad almost every year. Once again, if Stalin and Kevedi were framing them, if, if they knew the accused were really innocent but being framed, would they behave like this? Stalin sounds genuinely interested about the activities of the accused. Not to mention this comment made by Stalin was never made public either. He was not acting for an audience. A further document of Stalin's comments to NKVD regarding Akalev Akovlev contained the following handwritten points by Stalin. Did he know about Varekis' services with the Tsarist secret police? His opinion about Mikhailov from Voronezhev and his participation in the CR Orgs. His contact with Trotsky. Did he see him personally in 1935 or in 1934? How did he want to use MOPR? Whom in MOPR did he make use of? Turn Akovlev's wife is a conspirator and she must tell us everything. Ask her about other friends, acquaintances of hers. Alexander Sherepin gave a speech in favor of Khrushchev. He quoted from Ayakir's letter to Stalin of June 9, 1937. A series of circular resolutions by Stalin. Kaganovich, Molotov, Malenkov, Voroshilov. On the letters and declarations made by those imprisoned testifies to the cruel treatment of people, of leading comrades, who found themselves under investigation. For example, when it was his turn, Yakir, the former commander of military region, appealed to Stalin in a letter in which he swore his own complete innocence. Here is what he wrote. I am a noble warrior, devoted to party, the state, the people, and as and the people, as I was for many years. My whole conscious life has been passed in selfless, honest work inside of party and of its leaders. Now I am honest in my every word. The problem here is that Shelpin has taken this letter entirely out of context and lied about its context. Contents. He claims Iyakir was innocent and always proclaimed his innocent. In reality, in this letter, he actually admitted his guilt, but Shelepin chose to omit this part. The full text of the letter first came out in 1994. Here are some of the parts left out by Shelepin. Dear close comrade Stalin, I dare address you in this manner, because I have said everything, given everything up, and it seems to me that I am a noble warrior devoted to the party. Then the fall into nightmare, into, into the irreparable horror of betrayal. The investigation is completed. I have been formally accused of treason to the state. I have admitted my guilt. I have fully repented. I have, 
unlimited faith in the justice and propriety of the decision of the court and the state. Now, I am honest in my every word. So Sherapin has taken a letter where a man admits his guilt and turned it into a claim of innocence. If Ayakil was truly innocent, would this kind of dishonesty really be needed? We have been already been over about Shwernik report attempts to blame Stalin on Kirov murder and for framing Tukhachevsky. No evidence was found and this time instead of trying to fabricate it, the Khrushchevites gave us gave up and focused on other things. The statement of Rehabilitation Commission from of the Politburo, published in August 1989, reads, It has been established, therefore, that after 1927, the former Trotskys and Zinoviets did not carry out any organized struggle against the party, did not unite against each other, unite with each other, either on terrorist or any other basis. And the case of the United Trotsky Zinoviet Terrorist Center was fabricated by the organs of NKVD upon direct order and with direct participation of J.V. Stalin. It is quite strange situation when Gorbachevites, supposed communists, are more anti-communist in their statements than Western historians. Although Trotsky later denied that he had any communications with former followers in the USSR since his exile in 1929, it is clear that he did. In the first three months of 1932, he sent a secret letters to former oppositionists Radek Sokolnikov and others. Although the contents of these letters are known unknown, it seems reasonable to believe they involved an attempt to persuade the addressees to return to opposition. Sometimes in November, in October of 1932, E.S. Goldsman, a Soviet official and former Trotskyist, met Sadov in Berlin and gave him an international memorandum on Soviet economic output. This memorandum was published in the bulletin the following month under the title The Economic Situation of the Soviet Union. It seems, though, Goldsman brought Sadov something else, a proposal from left oppositionists in USSR for form formation of a united opposition bloc. The proposed bloc was to include Trotskyists, Zinoviewicz, members of Lominets group, and others. Proposal came from Kolkownikov, the codename of Ivan Smirnov. Western historians admit this, but Gorbachevite government, government denies it. Of course, we know Gorbachev was an anti-communist himself. My ambition was to liquidate communism. My ideal is the path of social democracy. The Gorbachevite rehabilitation, the Gorbachevite rehabilitation committee also denied the terrorist character of this bloc, which they claimed didn't even exist, despite the fact that even non-Soviet sources testified to it. Molotov also spoke about those phony rehabilitations in his interview with Shuve, published in 1993. Molotov. Take Tukhachevsky, for example. On what grounds was he rehabilitated? Did you read the records of the trial of the right-wing and Trotsky's blocks in 19, block in 1938? Bukharin, Krestinsky, Goltz, and others were on trial then. They stated flat out in June 1937. Tukhachevsky pressed for a coup. People who have not read the record go on to say the testimony was given under duress from Czechists. But I say... Had we not made those swooping arrests in 1930, we would have suffered even greater 
greater losses in the war. It was not politically advantageous for Molotov to say these things. He supported Stalin and continued to defend his legacy against lies and slander, even though Gorbachevite and Khrushchevite governments didn't look kindly on it. He had nothing to gain for these statements except for the knowledge he was speaking the truth. So we have this popular narrative that Stalin was paranoid and purged many people, that he used the opportunity of murder of Kirov to create an environment of terror to tighten his grip on power. But there is evidence that many popular historians choose to ignore about Trotskyist activities inside the Soviet Union going against Lenin's, not Stalin's, but Lenin's fa stance against factionalism. Stalin was paranoid because conspiracy was true. The Western intellectuals believed lies of Trotsky. The capitalist could use Trotsky to completely discredit the Soviet Union. The communist could use Trotsky as an excuse for the horrors of Stalinism, saying it wasn't real communism. But they also believed USSR was a worker's paradise after Stalin. It is easier to fall into good guy, bad guy narrative that Trotsky was an idealist and Stalin was a gangster psychopath who destroyed the revolution. The reality is that Trotsky was just as psychopathic as Joseph Stalin and Stalin was just as idealistic as Trotsky. There was a Machiavellian power struggle between many Bolsheviks after the death of Lenin and Stalin won that power struggle. The Nazino Island tragedy refers to the mass deportation of mass deportations to Nazino Island in the USSR in May 1933. People were deport, deported to construct a special settlement. About 6,200 people arrived on the island. They didn't have enough protections against Siberian climate, and 300 people froze to death on the first night. They only had flour, flour as food because guards didn't want to make bread. They mixed flour with river water and they got poisoned and suffered from dysentery. Guards hunted down anyone who tried to live like animals. Some who managed to escape were as good as dead because of harsh climate of Siberia. Order quickly broke down on the island. Living conditions deteriorated quickly as disease, violence and abuse of power became widespread. Guards were unable to control people and left them to each other. Eventually, people on that island indulged in cannibalism. One of the most famous eyewitnesses recalled, they were trying to escape. They asked us, where's the railway? We'd never seen railway. They asked, where's Moscow, Leningrad? They were asking wrong people. We never heard of those places. We are Ostaks. We are running. People were running away, starving. They were given a handful of flour. They mixed it with water and drank it and then immediately got diarrhea. The things we saw, people were dying everywhere. They were killing each other. On the island, there was also a guard named Kostya Vernikov, a young fellow. He fell in love with a girl who had been sent there and was courting her. He protected her. One day, he had to be away for a while and he told one of his comrades, take care of her. But with all, this, all of the people there, comrades couldn't really do much. Couldn't do much really. People caught the girl, tied her to a popular tree, popular tree, cut off her breasts, her muscles, everything they could eat, everything, everything. They were hungry, they had to eat. When Kostya came back, she was still alive. He tried to save her, 
but she had lost too much blood. The original report on the incident was made by Vasily Vilchenko, a Soviet propaganda worker. Only 2200 people survived the 13 weeks and only 200 people were considered healthy. Survivors were most likely cannibals, which caused them to be Survivors were most likely cannibals. The report was originally passed to Joseph Stalin and to other members of the Politburo, which caused them to be noticeably disturbed. This re the report resulted in a commission by the Communist Party to study the affairs and discontinue plans of similar settlements. They were discovered in 1980-1988 as a result of glasnost policy. Well, that's it for the part one. And I'll come out with the part two very. I'll come out with the part two very soon. I was away for about two months. Over that, over two months. Some of that was deliberate. Some of that was unfortunate. But now I'm back, and I want to continue. And I want to be a regular uploader. I want to upload content regularly. So anyway, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I'll see you guys very, very, very soon.